Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we discuss things going on in the world and therapy, mental health land, the things in our office, and we're bringing another week of discussion around suicide here. We've just had two weeks of our continuing education episodes on working with suicidal clients. This week, we're focusing in on you, Canada. And <laughs> oh, Canada. So, Canada has a medical assistance in death law that has been out since 2016. And much like many other jurisdictions over the world, this allows for people who are facing terminal illnesses and things like that to receive medical assistance in being able to uh, die by suicide once certain conditions are met. Now, this Canadian legislation has an interesting twist that's coming up in March of 2023. And what this does is makes Canada the third country in the world that will allow for mental illness to be one of the things that can be a qualifying factor for receiving medical assistance in death. The acronym for this is pronounced MAID, M-A-I-D. That's what we'll probably be using a lot through this episode here. But this is kind of a shocking thing that leads to a lot of moral questions and ethical questions that Katie and I have seen, read about, come up with on our own, but really it boils down to, are you in support of people ending their lives because of mental illness? That's such a complex question. I think there are folks who I've worked with, who I'm aware aware of, who have had what has been called serious mental illness, where there is a lot of suffering, a lot of time spent trying to figure out how to keep them safe also living in you know just huge amounts of paranoia and fear and doing dangerous things and causing a lot of concerns for their family members and there's a part of me that says they should be able to make a decision about how they end their lives And there's another part of me that says, I don't know that they could make competently make that decision. And so I'm I'm sitting at a strong, I don't know. My first thought was, okay, when I found out that 
this is going to expand to include mental illness. My thoughts went to some of the very, very severe mental illness that you're referring to here. Yes. This legislation is actually any mental illness. Mm -hmm. Depression, adjustment disorders. I don't know if it gets into like Z codes and that kind of stuff. But <laughs> so it, it opens, you're saying it could theoretically open it up to everyone. It opens it up to everyone. And a little background information on this uh, Canada's CARDIS uh, think tank is finding that 80% of Canadians want help in making it simpler to have the ability for people to make their own end of life choices. 33% are enthusiastic supporters of MAID, but 48% are cautious supporters. And I think sure. that that's initially, if I was polled in this, yeah. that, that's probably where I would fall. Because as we've discussed over the last couple of weeks is many people who are in the feelings of suicide find that they're temporary and that they're able to get through those feelings. It may not improve any of the situations that led to those feelings in the first place, but there seems to be an absence of the abundance of caution that goes to our very ethical codes and the very way that we approach being mental health professionals in this. And where we're going to point is to the two other countries that have safeguards in place that as of the recording of this episode, are not in the Canadian legislation at this point. Now, the two countries that have these things in place are the Netherlands and Belgium. And we'll meander in and out of talking about their experiences with it. But the safeguards that those countries have in place boils down to the idea of all other treatment options have been exhausted. And or considered. I mean, the way that I read the, the article that you had found about this, I, I feel like there was an element of the doctor needs to present and and try other mechanisms and determine with the patient that there is no other reasonable option to make things better. So it doesn't mean they have to try every palliative you know, effect. They don't have to try every thing, but the doctor needs to be satisfied before they would approve it. Whereas what it seems like is happening with Canada is that the, the patient can just say, no, I don't want to try anything else. And if they have what is considered appropriate for MAID, that their lives are foreseeably going to end, which I guess that's everybody. And they're, they have a situation that is unbearable. They can then, they must, the, the doctors actually must approve it. Whether the, they can, they can try to convince their patients hey, there's other things to try. But if the patient says, no, I don't want to try it, then the doctor, at least in one of the articles that you that you shared with me, the doctor has to say, okay, then I will help you with this. And we'll include links to the articles that we're referencing in our show notes. You can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. Now, the safeguards that are in place in the Canadian legislation is that people have to be evaluated by two medical professionals. Yes. And if the cause is psychological illness, then there has to be at least 24 months from application until the procedure can be carried through. Ah, 
Okay. So this is not where it's just somebody who's in the midst of a first feelings of suicide ends up being able to initiate this maneuver. The, the bare minimum of safety here. And Donna Wilson, a professor within the Faculty of Nursing in the University of Alberta in Edmonton, describes the safeguards as sufficient. Quote, the person has to apply. There has to be an assessment by two qualified medical professionals, and there has to be sort of a grace period. It isn't like you apply today and it's done tomorrow. However, Harvey Shipper, MDA, professor of medication and adjunct professor of legislation on the University of Toronto, says those requirements are mainly procedural and don't go far enough. They're usually not clear or uniformly utilized. There's nothing in any educational curriculum about it. So Wild West second right here. And because of this, charges made on inhabitants foundations fluctuate throughout Canada. So he's describing it as the Wild West, that yeah. these aren't that these safeguards are not enforced the same way or they wouldn't necessarily be enforced the same way. I mean, I think two different medical professionals and I guess one of the questions are are we some of those professionals that be making this assessment and 24 months I mean that that actually seems like in part that would give someone the opportunity to have symptoms abate or things to change I think there's this other piece of if someone's trying to convince people for 24 months that they should die that doesn't necessarily uh, improve their mental health as it stands. So I don't know. I mean, where do you, do you think that that is a sufficient safeguard? You know, whenever we look at things like scope of practice, we look at what the educational standards are. And as an educator myself, I look at what are the things that we train students to do? And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just a faculty member of a marriage and family therapy program. We generally teach people, here's how to intervene and keep people as safe as possible during suicidal feelings. When we do talk about California's Death with Dignity Act, we do it as a, that's beyond the scope of this course, and you should get specialized training on that later. Ah, got it. Got it. So I very much agree with, like, we can acknowledge that these things are there, but if it's not a core parts of the curriculum. And this comes very much to where a lot of our ethics codes and the guidance within our profession says, well, what is an appropriate standard of training on something like this? But I think that when it comes to mental health and the way that we look at clients, part of what our ethics codes also say is to respect the decision-making of where our clients are coming from and what their desires end up being. And some of that self-autonomy sort of aspects. And yeah, self-determination. This is where it really raises the question as far as, like, do we have the right, the moral right as therapists, mental health professionals of any sort of background or license, to tell clients that they must live or that it's okay for them to end their own life? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really the crux of it. If I have a client who is actively suicidal, I, by training, am going to try to keep them alive. And yet, what say do we actually have in, in whether someone continues to live? I mean, there's laws that prevent it. 
I think that there's this criminal aspect of dying by suicide. I guess that the the question that that follows for me on this is whether or not it's worked for us to say no you must live and I'm going to I'm going to keep you alive if, <laughs> in whatever way I can because Canada's going the other way. Canada's saying it is up to individuals to decide if they live or not and they can get medically medical assistance in death if they so choose and you know go through this process that may or may not have enough have sufficient safeguards and so to me i could argue either point thrizer is a payment platform designed for out of network therapy as a therapist you would use thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front from the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. This doesn't seem to be one where you can just kind of pick the middle. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. And yet, I mean, there, there's going to be a, a, a huge, you know, a crap load of it depends. I think client by client, there are situations where I would feel like it's my responsibility to try to keep them alive. And there are clients that I'm certain that would have reasonable standing for you know, what used to be called euthanasia or assisted suicide. I mean, I think that there are the, the broad array of experiences make it hard to say one thing or the other, though. You know, most of us who listen to this podcast are probably not going to be in a position, at least as of the time of recording or when the time of this goes into effect, are going to be the people who evaluate. But it is something that directly affects a lot of the clients that we may end up serving. Yes. Now, the expertise of the people who are the ones evaluating if a client is qualified for MAID has to be a medical practitioner or nurse practitioner who has expertise in the requester's condition in cases where a thorough appraisal of past interventions is required to establish incurability and irreversibility, and the requester must be given complete information about existing options. It is essential that at least one of the assessors have Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada certification in a specialty that covers the requester's condition. The other assessor may or may not be the person's treating physician or nurse practitioner but one of them should not be on the treatment team. So a person outside for a little bit of objectivity, but there's more of a requirement about the condition, which for the mental health folks would be mental health. Um, but if it's somebody that is 
seriously depressed or hopeless or those types of things because of a medical condition and they're seeking made for a medical condition, it may not even come up that they're not, there's not capacity to make the decision because there's not a medical, a mental health professional on the team. And I think that that's huge within this as well is the capacity to make the decision ends up also being something where, you know, a lot of this is portrayed incorrectly by things like, you know, the Hollywood view of like incurable insanity or, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity as far as the courts go, but the competency in those cases to be able to stand trial ends up being one thing. The capacity to be able to make a decision of, I, as a patient, feel this way and want to get out of this feeling. I don't see myself being able to make these decisions in the future. I don't see things getting better. I can imagine some cases of severe mental illness where that feeling can permeate for quite a while, but I'm also just kind of looking at, you know, the, the number of different treatment options where people, you know, therapists come up short sometimes and it might just be a, a responsibility of the therapist of like, you know, we, you know, need to maybe find you a different provider that can offer some, something that I cannot, that, seems to be like there's too many places i guess in my initial reaction of this there's too many places where too many little gaps might end up being something that ultimately leads to the loss of life here well it's it what you're saying it requires a quote unquote incompetent therapist being able to identify their incompetence and refer on Because if they don't, their client may choose to die by suicide. I mean, I think some of this may be some hand-wringing. I don't know how many folks are just waiting for this to come into effect so that they can get medical assistance in death. I think that the elements I think that are are interesting that you're, you're speaking to with this is someone competent to make a decision is folks trying to do it ahead of, of time, like with an Alzheimer's diagnosis or, or other cognitive decline and, and really being able to do some end of life planning. And so I think that there's this possibility that it opens up some really positive options for folks on ending their life the way they want to and being able to, to, have their family with them, being able to kind of create some sort of a scenario. And then on the other end, I see it as what you're describing is, is this wasteland of, of folks who are in incompetent or poor treatment. They're, they're in a space where, you know, they don't have a lot of options, not because there's not treatment options, but there's not a lot of medical providers who will, who will treat them. I mean, I think about our field and how few people want to work with serious mental illness or how few people want to do things for folks who have 
some of the quote unquote challenging mental health concerns. Like to me, I'm not worried that someone that's a little depressed is going to decide they want to die by suicide. I think a lot of people, we've, we've talked about protect protective and risk factors and that kind of stuff. I think it's more that there are going to be folks who are, are in this space of not being cared for um, being outside of, you know, the, the typical treating, you know, kind of community, so to speak, who really don't feel like they have options and maybe that they don't and they choose to die by suicide versus advocating for stronger treatment. And so to me, I just, I worry about who will be negatively impacted by this versus the folks who I think could be greatly benefited by it because they are already navigating end of life decisions. And that this gives them a little bit more control over that and potentially a, 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 you know, kind of the death with dignity that I think is intended by it. The Netherlands has had made since 2002 and it's been regulated by law there. And it's really part of their evaluation looks at is the condition grievous and irremediable and there's a very difficult struggle there because how do you determine grievous and irremediable in psychiatry yeah outside of dementia nothing else gets really shown on brain scans as far Mm. as there being something physically different in going on with the client And Dutch psychiatrist, Dr. Cisco Van Veen, says in psychiatry, really all you have is a patient's story and what you see with your eyes and what you hear and what the family tells you. And that makes looking at a mental disorder's prognostic predictability really, really difficult. We don't make predictions in our fields as far as we don't make promises to clients. We don't say you'll get better in any of these, you know, number of sessions. And In the 15 years between when this procedure went into effect in the Netherlands and a 2017 study said in 45% of all requests in the Netherlands, the request did not lead to euthanasia. So about a little bit more than half actually did end up uh, fully completing the procedure. The, The half that didn't were either because the patient died before the request could be completed, about 60% of those cases, um, or because the physician concluded that the new care criteria were not being met. And that's the part that's missing from the Canadian legislation here. And about 20% of requests were withdrawn after discussions with the doctors. So presumably during the two years of intervening that clients decided that, hey, Maybe I can live with this. Yeah. That 20% number is the one that sticks out to me most. Yeah. I mean, it's not a huge number necessarily because it's 20% of the 45% who didn't go through. Uh, So it's not gigantic, but it's still significant in my mind. I don't know if it's statistically significant, but it is significant in my mind because it's folks who are hopeless have a have a conversation or maybe 20 conversations with a medical professional and decide that life is actually worth living and life or or it's better enough. I mean that's a p value of like 9%. That that's pretty significant. 
Sure. I mean, we're not actually doing math here. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have all of the data. We don't know the numbers. I mean, we've got some numbers, but still. I I think what we can say, though, is that even if it's around 10% or even 5%, I mean, that there, there are folks who, in a country that's highly regulated for this, there's a there's a, a mechanism that they're saying, I, I don't see a way out. This is how I want to die. That without those extra safeguards, that who would die in Canada? I think that is relevant. I think it is important that we look at it that way. I guess the 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 question is, I mean, stepping further back on this, when we look at reasons why, and I don't know that we have this information, but why someone with a mental illness is seeking medically medical assistance and death. I mean, do we know what that is? Do we know why folks are actually doing it? Because to me, I can see per, per, potential things, you know, kind of the treatment res- resistant depression or serious mental illness that is so pervasive that it's almost akin to a severe dementia as far as, as kind of cognitive um, problems. But I mean, there there are things that will never get better that I don't think require this as an option or or should even be suggested as an option. I mean, we talk we talk about the the folks, the disability movement. We talk about the neurodivergent movement. Like these are folks they would potentially qualify for this, and I believe that they have the ability to to create lives, especially as if as a society we become more. Um, or I guess less ableist and more inclusive. To me, it seems like this is saying, well, you know, you can write yourselves off. We have, I mean, it's just, it's hard to really get my head around what is really acceptable here. What's really worth happening here. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Well, I mean, this also pushes big questions like what is in fact mental illness because there with you know let's go back to our dsm5 interview where dr first was talking about there's some things that they just kind of leave in the dsm to help with insurance billing and for people to get sure. services covered that probably don't fit within what we would call mental illness anymore yeah and i think that you know, this is where there's so much that's undefined within this Canadian legislation that really ends up making it to where physicians have to be obedient to the wishes of patients if they can't convince the patients that there's other viable alternatives. Well, and and that goes also to physicians could recommend it. And if the patients say, okay, the physicians don't have to try any additional treatments. I mean, we're talking about good physicians who are potentially going to be traumatized because they're going against what their morals and values are. But this is also a mechanism to get rid of folks. I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you've got a patient that feels like it's hopeless. You can just say, oh, you don't feel like there's any treatment that can work. Well, we have this new law. 
here you go. I mean, I don't, I don't know that people will do that. I hope they wouldn't, but there's still that element of bias and poor treatment and all of these things where I think if there's not sufficient safeguards, this can be abused, not only by not abuse, that's a wrong word, but like it could be unfortunately used by patients who can't see the possibilities or abused by physicians who are giving up on patients. Being forced to kind of acknowledge that you as a physician have to follow through on a procedure that you may not necessarily agree with. Now, it might not be that particular physician who's the one providing the injection, uh, yeah. but that you're somebody who you know has done the evaluation, says, you know, you meet the three requirements that are here or whatever number it is without necessarily being like, but there's all of these things outside of the bare minimum of requirements that should be a safeguard that's here. Yeah. I think, you know, we can, we can wring our hands, we can make dramatic statements, but I think it really comes down to more safeguards should be in place because we, we've got medical professionals who are either complying with potentially uninformed patients or medical professionals who are co-signing on something that they may not feel comfortable with. And so to me, it seems like it needs to have some delicacy. It needs to have some nuance. And my hope is that the medical professionals would do that. Um, I think what I'm hearing is that you're concerned that it would be way too easy for this to be used um, in a way that would be very harmful for both patient and doctor. I'm thinking of, you know, the episodes that we've had in talking with people about losing a client. Like mm -hmm. there's the unexpected, you know, when you lose a client to death, when you lose a client to suicide, this seems to be, you know, taking care of the therapist here. Yeah. When patients are going to go through with something that you don't agree with and it results in their death. Yes. Like, I'm I'm imagining the burden that that's going to feel on therapists. Yeah. Therapists, doctors, all the folks that would be involved on that that end of it, I think it's it's a huge uh a huge weight, emotional weight. One last group that I want to talk about with this is the First Nations, Inuit and Matisse peoples of Canada. Mm -hmm. And the articles that we're citing here say that the engagement with the Indigenous people of Canada concerning MAID has yet to occur. Okay. Which is difficult, but there's a 2020 study by Turple and LaFond that talks about the historical harmful policies and practices of colonization, such as residential schools, uh, legislation that the federal government has a history of causing harm to the aforementioned groups. And compared to the non-Indigenous populations, a disproportionate number of Indigenous people live in poverty, have an adequate housing, a lack of clean drinking water, and have limited access to education and health care. Anti-Indigenous racism is also widespread in Canada's healthcare system, and as a result of creations of laws that provide access to MAID, concerns have been raised by Indigenous leaders and communities that it is far easier for people in their communities to access a way to die than to access the resources they need to live well. 
Wow. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to a lot of the concerns I have about this, where it is wonderful to think that people can have some self-determination and get what they need in these difficult times. But it points out something that's really interesting. We don't have that self-determination in medical care in a lot of ways, not in accessing things and not accessing that them. We do, right? We, we can say, no, I don't want that medical treatment. But we can't say, I want this medical treatment. And, and maybe it's different in Canada, but it's harder to say, I want this medical treatment. And they're like, well, no, but it's not medically necessary. And so this is, this is really, I mean, it's, it's a really complex thing. I don't even think we got into all of the, the, the complexity here on, on what this means. I mean, there's, I, I still sit with, I think folks should be able to make decisions for themselves, but I want them to be competent decisions. I want them to have the best possible decision, which means that they're not necessarily in that uh, entrapment phase of, of the model that we talked about in the last two suicide episodes. We are such a cheerful uh, little podcast here. Um, but I think if someone's in the entrapment phase, I, I, I just cringe at them being able to make this decision without any safeguards, without any, any requirement to, to at least give another chance to living. Um, but I do want people to have some self-determination and I certainly don't think that criminalizing suicide is necessarily the, the strongest way to keep people from taking their own lives. And I'm concerned that this puts treatment professionals, both the medical doctors, also the mental health professionals in situations where they're going to have to legally support services that they're morally against when it comes to situations of life or death. Yeah. No, I, I and I think as we've seen um, and we've talked about with, you know, a few episodes on clinician suicide, I think this could potentially lead to more clinician, medical provider, mental health provider suicide just because it is such a moral misalignment. We would love to hear your thoughts, especially if you're part of our Canadian audience and help us know whatever it is that we can do from here and join us on our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. Let us know, have conversations there, follow us on our social media. And if you want to continue to support us, consider becoming a Patreon member where we do some cool things with our audience from time to time and have goodies and stuff to give away. If you can't become a patron, consider supporting us at Buy Me a Coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code Modern Therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. 
You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.